Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Carl McKeever. For this episode, we're in Barcelona to bring you highlights from World Retail Congress 2023. With over 750 attendees, it was a truly global gathering, with much to take in and reflect on. The theme for this year's Congress was Retail Leadership for Extraordinary Times. Despite the retail industry facing multiple challenges, the mood was defiantly positive. What was clear was that retailers around the world are determined to find strategies, technologies, solutions and ideas that allow their businesses to move forward and to serve both their customers and people better. From omnichannel innovation and automation to adapting processes that reflect important issues around both people and the planet. While the importance of purpose was underlined time and time again by speakers including David Boynton, who has just stepped down from the body shop. In this special episode, we bring you highlights from speakers, main stage panel sessions and conversations from the likes of The Body Shop, Fraser's Group, IKEA, Camper and many more. All that to come on this World Retail Congress 2023 event review episode from the Retail Exchange podcast. What are the biggest front of mind challenges and opportunities in the thoughts of retail leaders right now? EY Global Retail Leader Thomas Harms was exploring just that at this year's World Retail Congress, moderating lively, interactive discussions with a panel of retail leaders throughout the event. I caught up with Thomas and EY colleague Sylvia Rindon, Retail Lead for UK and Ireland, to discuss some of the headline themes across the three-day event. So Thomas, what did you feel were some of the key takeouts discussed? Well, I think one of the key take-ups was that they immediately started with the importance of the employees in the store to make the experience a reality. So everybody is talking about the transformation, the technology is enabling that, but if that is not happening with the people in mind, it will fail. So is this about making sure that you connect the strategy with the delivery? Absolutely, and that you take the people on the floor with you. And were there any other key messages that you felt people were really taking away? Well, the other one was that technology should only be used if it really resonates with the value proposition. So in the grocery field, it's a lot about taking friction out. That's the one part. The other thing is, and we also see that with other of our clients, if you are used to this specific product, you want to have the same again if it breaks. And then, of course, you also need to have it fast. So, Sylvia, um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about new developments in retail. But the truth is, much of this is incremental evolution. For you, what really stands out are things which are genuinely new and genuinely exciting, things that could be the next game changers? Um, Yeah, I think you're right. We've just come out of a period, the last two, three years, where organizations had to really focus on improving the business and facing some of the macro challenges uh, that they've been facing too. They've taken this as an opportunity to really improve and to focus on what matters. But equally, it has given opportunity to start to think about innovation and growth. So where I've seen a bit of a shift, if I compare the conversations that we've had in the Retail Congress last year versus this year. Last year it was a lot about understanding how to face into the cost pressures and the price pressures. 
this year I see more, I hear more conversations about where to grow and how to grow. Now, in terms of innovation, I'm afraid to say that in, innovation is still driven a lot by technology and what technology enables you to do differently. Uh, there are, for me, I always make two, a distinction between innovation that consumers really touch and feel. So innovation about the product, innovation about the customer experience, innovation about how they approach a brand or approach a retailer. Innovation on consumer facing is a really important driver for growth, but I wanted to come to the second part of how I define innovation is the innovation internally. So we hear a lot about innovation, how businesses operate differently and there is a lot of innovation happening in the sector and that is becoming a really important driver for innovation in the operational part of the business uh, to build a more sustainable model that is um, economically more viable. So Thomas, Sylvia's given us some really good insight there in terms of you know, the understanding of where the new priorities are, what innovation means and why people should really be thinking that this is a, a key priority. But for you, what do you think are some of the other priorities that people should be focusing on for the remainder of 2023? Well, I think it's clear that the retail world is digitalizing and that the steps that many retailers take are half-hearted. So especially, as you said, it's risky to move into this direction. However, doing nothing is even more riskier. And knowing your consumers and focusing both channels on them I think is key in the future, definitely. If they don't do it, um, they are set up for failure. And the other thing is you need to be clear about your value proposition. And a, a little bit of everything will no longer work. Yeah? So you need to be really clear on it and deliver on your value promise. Thomas, Sylvia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts at the event. Fraser's Group is becoming one of the fastest growing retailers, demonstrating how it can build iconic brands and bring excitement back to the high street. Taking on the job in 2022, its CEO, Michael Murray, took to the main stage to discuss the future for Fraser's Group and why there is still life in the old department store concept. So it is an old-fashioned concept of retailing, but it doesn't mean it's broken. It, it just needs reimagining. And department stores never had to compete with online. It was all about range. It was all about multiple categories, hence the word department store. But they've become very unproductive past a certain size. And that's what we found with House of Fraser. The, the bigger they are in some second-tier cities, you've got, obviously got the Selfridges, you've got the Harrods, which are in beautiful stores with great brand mix. And... Uh, they do a great job, but when you get into second and third tier cities, it becomes a whole different ballgame. You can't have 100, 150, 200,000 square feet stores and online. You've got to try and, because uh, the productivity per square foot just drops off a cliff. You know, you've not got enough brands and enough consumers to fill the space. So what happens then is you don't make enough money, you then start cutting corners, the, the customer experience gets worse, you don't invest in the stores, and it's just a death spiral and it just keeps going down and down and down. So what we've tried to do is come out of marginal towns and cities where the population is, say, below 100,000 people, and then try and utilize the rest of the group. So bring in things like our gyms business to fill some of the space, bring in Sports Direct onto a floor with its own entrance so we can start to make the stores more productive. And obviously that all comes into an alignment with the landlords as well, because you've got to negotiate with the landlords to make sure you've got flexible lease terms, but also a shared commitment on investment. 
In a rare public interview, Primark CEO Paul Marchant joined the international broadcast journalist Nagam Manchetti on stage to talk about Primark's increasing international presence, the often unpublicised work the retailer is doing in areas of sustainability, and how the retailer is bringing its unique brand strengths to fashion and price-conscious consumers. Listen, I've been doing this forever ever since I was out of shorts. And I've been working at Primark now for for 14 years doing this job. And I I still get so excited every day about about retail. It's what I love doing. I'd spend every minute of my day in stores if I can. I think it's an unbelievably exciting industry. I don't think we give anywhere near enough credit to what retail does, to job creation. I think that now that the, the pandemic is behind us, I think it's a real opportunity for us to bring, you know, high streets back to the great standards they were before. Um, people, you know, I've seen some unbelievable brands. We walk around um, every city that we operate in, and the investment that's going into retail. I think the future is really bright. It's certainly, we feel that we're continuing to invest in stores, invest in technology, invest in digital platforms, invest in sustainability, increasing our, you know, the people that we employ, the number of people. It's, you know, this is, a, this is a fantastic industry and we'll feel really proud to be part of it. If I look at our product offer, about 50% of all the products we sell are what we classify as basics. It's, it's underwear, it's socks, it's white shirts, it's basic t-shirts, it's towels. So, uh, so, so half of it is, is, is product that sits on the shelves, most of it for a full year at a time before we consider changing that style. So that underpins our operation. I think that we fully recognise the responsibility that we have as a brand to our colleagues, our customers, the environment. We launched our Primark Cares initiative strategy about 18 months ago, the three key pillars of product, planet and people. And we're making really good progress on that. I think, I think the mistake that we made as a business was not to tell consumers and tell the world at large and communicate some of the good stuff we've been doing for many, many, many years. We employed our group sustainability director over 13 years ago. So we've been on this for a long time, but we've been very shy. We've kept our head below the parapet. We haven't really told some of the good work that we've done. And a piece of work around Primark Cares was really the catalyst of bringing uh, our message um, to the public. We're quite a private company. We, we believe that just going about our business, trying to do the right thing, trying to be better every day and not shouting about it and trying to get accolades for it was the right thing to do. I think the problem was people therefore assumed that because we weren't telling the story, we were doing nothing. Now, having now been more public and made more statements about what we are doing, you still get people who then try to you know, challenge your model. I think the big opportunity that we have and what really excites me, and I know excites all of my colleagues, is that how we can use the scale that we have and the volume we have to make a big difference. We sell a lot of merchandise, we make a lot of merchandise in the factories that we operate in around the world. We have a real opportunity through scale to bring about massive change. I'll give you one small example. We've had a real focus on, on use of plastics in our business. So lots of initiatives, like simple things like taking the plastic barbs that you know the price tickets hang off of, taking them off, moving more of our hangers to be cardboard, 
Just focusing on that alone, we've taken 500 million pieces of plastic out of the business in 18 months. So we can make a massive difference by making small changes. But I think that what we recognise is that we can't do all of this on our own. We know that we can make a big impact ourselves, but I think if the industry comes together, and by the industry I mean our competitors, the factories, the fabric manufacturers, if we all work together, I think actually huge change can be brought about because, you know, this isn't something that, that is a nice to do, it's a need to do, it's a must do. You know, this, this, this is not easy, this is really hard. This is a, a big task that we face and just making this a box ticking exercise yeah. is, is not what we're about at all. And actually, if you look at our, the Primark Care strategy that we laid out and we've got set 27 targets there, many of them go beyond any sort of public targets that have been set. So we are, we are pushing much harder, I think, than any box ticking would tell us we need to do. And, and because it's, it's absolutely the right thing for us to do, we, you know, we have a lot of livelihoods that are dependent on the Primark business, and we've got a responsibility to you know, make sure we can improve at working conditions in the factories, work towards a living wage, reduce our carbon emissions, particularly in, the, in our factories, that's where the majority of the carbon emissions come, and develop more sustainable products. I mean, 50% of the products we sell today in the Primark store are made with either using recycled materials or sustainable fabrics. That's grown from 25% only a year ago. So we're making brilliant progress, but you know what? There's never gonna be a finish line here. It's just keep, we've got to keep striving to be better every day. You're still expanding. You mentioned Toledo um, here in Barcelona, a yeah. number of stores as well. Do you keep expanding? Is that what winning is for Primark? What is winning over the next two, three years for a retailer such as Primark? I think winning is two things. It's continuing to surprise and delight our existing customers and bring the Primark proposition that's been so successful in the markets that we're in today to more customers around the world. Now we're expanding here in Spain. You know, we've got 56 stores here today in Spain, 57 when we opened in Toledo, five here in Barcelona. We're growing in France, in Italy, in Portugal, particularly in the US. I was at the Buffalo opening in upstate New York last week and we had 500 customers waiting outside the store. They were all beyond excited about Primark coming. They all danced in the, in the store as the music was playing when we opened the doors. And to see that, I think, is fantastic. And, you know, if we can continue to offer the same fashion that we offer, amazing fashion, amazing prices, and have very strong, sustainable credentials alongside that, then I think we'll continue to make our existing customers happy and attract new ones. Paul Martin. A brand that we've previously featured on the interview series, footwear and apparel company Allbirds continues to grow globally. Despite this, and the pressures that come with it, Allbirds continues to remain focused on aligning profit with impact, as its co-founder and CEO, Joey Zilwinger, explained, via a remote link to those attending World Retail Congress 2023. If it's just for the purpose... Um, it doesn't deserve, frankly, to be a business. If it's for a business model where utilizing the purpose of the underlying company and what, what our ambition is from an impact perspective to actually fuel the growth and the profitability of the enterprise. Now, that's a really symbiotic and virtuous cycle that we can create. 
So what I mean from that is we constrain our innovation process to low carbon emission, naturally derived materials. That makes something differentiated, makes it feel better, look better for the consumer. That allows us to grow and capture more attention from people so that they buy our shoes. Every shoe that somebody buys from us is a dollar of profit for us and also a big impact for the environment because we're taking share from somebody else who's doing it with the historical petrochemical infrastructure that's been used in the footwear industry for the last 60 years. So I'd say that alignment of profit with impact was the foundational concept. So if we could prove that we could build a business that was more like a tree, for example, than what you typically think of a consumer products company, which is a very extractive and you know, just that extract and dispose kind of a model, uh, then we could be something really special and a beacon for not just the footwear industry, but something else. And that leadership would give us great attention for the consumer. So that that is really the central underpinning of what we do every day. Undoubtedly, uh, as the scale grows, pressures from multiple different stakeholders grow. So that is um, uh, not to be ignored. Uh, we're a public company. We have to give annual financial guidance. We have to hit those targets for revenue and, and profit. We also give annual uh, guidance on our carbon reduction. And so we try to be really equal with our fiduciary responsibility and our responsibility to our environmental conservation, which is our chartered in our, in our cor- incorporation documents. So it is difficult in some ways, but at the same time, what we've seen is that people in the innovation economy, not inside our company, but the the innovators out there, they could sometimes be in the form of giant chemical companies, sometimes in the form of really small companies in, uh, in the apparel industry doing novel things with material. Because they've seen what that business model that I just described, how it works, how we can get real scale and do great storytelling to bring it to life that it means something powerful for a consumer and that, that that is utilizing something unique and novel, we've become the de facto kind of, I guess, first port of call for anything in the innovation ecosystem that's de- derived from natural materials or bio-based materials that are low carbon. So in, in, a, in a way, it starts to get easy because the, the inbounds calling from the industry start to be much more robust and we can actually curate what we're trying to use and be very selective versus go out and, as I said, go hunting for everything and get told no five times before you get told yes. So um, in some ways, it's quite a bit easier now. Uh, and that's that's quite a blessing. And we're looking to really build on that foundation. The screen behind me is about a, a project we just launched where we've actually launched the world's first, we believe at least, net zero, no emission carbon shoe. And we've done that by sourcing all the way up to the farms we work with on eucalyptus fibers, as well as the merino wool we source from New Zealand and Australia along with another uh, a suite of materials, it is possible to do this, to be more like a tree and to deliver something incredibly desirable for a consumer while not taking away from the earth. So th- the next five years for us is about amazing product that people covet because it's amazing product, not because it's sustainable, but also delivering on this ambition for us to become that tree and that idea and that inspirational idea where we can do something uh, truly breakthrough and unique. And so uh, we're confident we have it resourced. We got the, I see the product every day. Uh, I think it's going to be breathtaking for consumers and I can't wait to get it out there. As a result of the pandemic, the grocery industry has seen significant shifts in consumer behaviour. Add to that rising food price inflation and supply chain challenges and grocery retailers are being forced to reassess many areas of their business. 
A key focus for US grocery retailer Albertsons is how to achieve greater sustainability and traceability within the supply chain. I sat down with the company's Chief Sustainability and Transformation Officer, Suzanne Long, to find out about this and its sustainability priorities for 2023 and beyond. One of the biggest things I'm seeing in my role is sustainability in the supply chain. And that's looking for products, for example, that are more sustainable, that are more traceable. And people are expecting to know where those products are coming from. And so it's not enough to know anymore just this item was produced in a certain city or state or country. People want to know the practices behind the products that they're buying. And as we look ahead to the rest of 2023 and beyond, what are some of your sustainability priorities for Albertsons? We have four areas of focus that are most important to us to show leadership. So the first is climate action, and that's really all about energy and emissions. The second is waste reduction and circularity, and that's all about food waste and plastics and packaging. The third is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that's a combination not just of our associates, but also of our customers and our suppliers. And then the fourth, um, but certainly not least, is community stewardship, and that's helping to relieve hunger. And so what we're ambitiously working towards is goals that we've set for 2030 that we've published through what we call our recipe for change. So for example, in the area of climate action, we've committed to reducing our internal carbon footprint by 47% by the year 2030. And for example, we've already actually made a 19% reduction just between 2019 and 2021. So, you know, we're continuing to pursue that, to try all kinds of new innovations, um, as well as just blocking and tackling the simplest things that we don't always do in our business, but if we're really good at, can reduce waste. And so we have, we have very ambitious plans. And the nice thing is we're already um, making good headway on the goals that we've set. In the push to better manage end-to-end fulfilment, automation robotics are helping to transform established warehouse operations while reducing the need for upfront investment. I spoke to Akesh Gupta, co-founder and CEO of Grey Orange, to learn more. Yeah, so I think from ROI perspective, one big change that we have done is we've gone to pretty much, you know, what we call as SaaS and RAS, so software as a service and robotics as a service, right? So that our customers don't need to do that level of upfront investment. So they can pretty much use a robot for three months and and pay just monthly or likes of that. So I think we have kind of made it easier for our customers. And and, and again, from, from Grey Orange's perspective, it's all about just being true partners to our customers and being able to, in, in these times, provide them a solution that would work for all of us and there's a win, win-win scenario. So I think pretty much every customer that we have been working with really are trying to get to a resilient uh, you know, supply chain. The last three years have been particularly unkind to the world's supply chains. Now, combined with heightened custard demands in their fulfilment requirements and limited labour pools, managing end-to-end fulfilment operations needs flexibility, scalability and speed. Kent Biscard, COO of retailer Flying Tiger Copenhagen, joined a panel session to discuss the changing face of supply chains and to share his thoughts on what it will take to deliver flexible fulfilment futures. We want stability and continuity in our deliveries, uh, not be pending on whether we have to push or hit a supplier to make sure we get deliveries. We want to plan it uh, in a flow which fits, but also both what consumers need in the end. 
Um, we're getting close to, I would say, operating in that model, but also we want to optimize it from where we are. So a lot of opportunities in that, but I think stability is really key here. If I get that, we can tell you, we are going to be in a very, very good place and we can move things forward a lot, lot faster. I think the biggest piece which is coming is the ESIS, which is all about sustainability and the reporting of it. What I'm missing is industry push. I don't think the industry is doing enough across the board. I'm missing governments. They're not doing anything. I'm putting it pretty blunt here, but on purpose. There are standards out there today, and let me give you some examples. There's a GIS standard on recyclable material. Uh, it's a certificate which proves basically that this is recyclable material you're using. There's a lot of fakes around. We do not have control of this. And as an industry, I think we need to take this at the bottom of it and really get to the grips about how we're going to run this. Again, it's a little bit like social compliance and child labor 25 years ago, but it's not enough is happening on sustainability. And for me here, we need to really approach it very differently than where we are today. With 46,000 service stations worldwide, Shell Mobility interact with millions of customers every day. Its mission, to make life's journeys better by providing quality fuels and increasingly EV charging, as well as a welcoming retail experience that offers customers convenience, quality and choice. At an event like World Retail Congress, it's important to recharge, which I did by taking time out to visit the Shell Recharge Station, grab a coffee and chat to Istvan Kapitani, Global EVP for Shell's mobility business, and the company's global CMO, Carol Chen, to chat about how shifts towards EV vehicles is providing new opportunities for retailers in the forecourt space. It is changing uh, our convenience retail business uh, for the better because we do have a customer segment who is really captive. They are there a tick longer than an average uh, IC uh, car driver. And therefore, what we see is that our convenience retail offer, like this uh, share cafe, which is here behind us, is really going very well with them because they like to sit down, you know, have a great cup of coffee, a croissant, and uh, you know, spend the time uh, uh, with something which is really, really enjoyable for them. And one of the things I'm loving about your cafe concept mm. is how instantaneous it is. It literally can come out of the box and is operational within a very short time. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you see this as well, where, where we are standing. It's basically, you can make it out of a container, you can do it very quickly you can do it in a day or two and the destination charging so when you are going out there into um, parking places into supermarket parking places it's important to have convenience retail offer or a coffee and uh, food offer to our customers so brands are always thinking about uh, scalability and yeah. how they can really take yeah. their great ideas and roll them out yeah. quickly what for you is the size of the potential and how quickly can you meet it so share cafe we already have 1500 uh, cafes uh, in uh, mainly in european countries but also started in Asia and uh, we, this year we're going to be adding another thousand uh, to that so it's going to be quite a significant coffee store network you know in, for, a, for a company like ours. But you know what's the size of the potential? It's huge because uh, the thing is it's going to be uh, a transitional period and uh, it's in the name it's going to be a long long period of coexistence of internal combustion engine cars EV cars and we are the very few who can uh, supply people with any type of mobility they need. If they need EV mobility, we are there for them. If they want to have ICs or internal combustion engine cars, we're going to be 
uh, for them as well. Because Shell is, after all, we are in 85 markets all around the world, and we're serving customers irrespective of whether they drive an EV car or, a, or an internal combustion engine car. I think in the UK you already have one forecourt, which is entirely 100% EV. Yeah. What, what do you think is the transition period now? In, in inner city locations, uh, you would see that uh, this will be, so internal combustion engine cars will be replaced with EV, and therefore our, our stations will shift to like Fulham that you mentioned, there's going to be you know, EV chargers. So basically we, we do what the customers want us to do. By the way, in China we already have 700 EV stations, so standalone EV stations where we only serve EV customers. So, so this is going to come um, faster to some parts of the world and some locations than many people think. So as you continue to roll out this concept, can we expect some additional things, some new innovations as well that you are starting to think about? We are always in test of the new innovation because as time goes by, the customer expectation will change, the technology will change. So I think that we always say that we have to learn our way into the future. So that's the whole test and pilot, but also how fast we can scale if some of the format is working. So we're always in the really focus to drive the next stage of innovation. So I guess one of the things is, is how you can bring together the different elements of the format. So the cafe concept with a retail concept all together. No, absolutely. So I think we talk about that we really, our job is to make customer life journey better. And then that part of the life journey, some will be driver ice car, some will drive an EV car. As customer go from A to B, how do we bring all the things together so we really deliver the best journey to the customers as they go? So one of the key things for the EV customer, we know that they want a couple of things, reliability, and then also that how can I have an enjoyable charging environment? The EV customer, they have a much longer time, either 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And also one of the things we also want you to, as you charge your car, you can also recharge yourself with a coffee, with a sandwich, with nice sitting. And then we really look after all your needs in one totality. So maybe in five years time, I can look forward to getting a coffee and perhaps even a massage at the Shell Spa. We actually, funny enough, we actually offer massage chair in some of our EV hubs in China already. So maybe we should invite you to take a look. I would love to come. Thank you so much. Thanks I'd so love that we had more time to talk, but it's wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much. What's one of the most significant marketing challenges that retailers have, which is going almost completely under the radar? According to Canadian-based software company Engagement Agents, it's a failure to identify and optimise the marketing costs that are hidden within retail shopping centre leases, something that could be costing retailers and brands millions of pounds of sales each year. I spoke to Engagement Agents founder and president, Sean Snyder, to learn more. Based on our research, it's collectively costing retailers hundreds of billions of dollars a year annually in lost traffic and sales, and we're doing our part to help retailers uh, get more of that back. And is this happening because corporate chains are not necessarily engaged with what's happening in a particular property on the ground, and they don't have that visibility almost of the opportunities that's being lost? There's a couple different reasons. Uh, one primarily is the fact that most retailers at a store level, the store managers have a relationship with the shopping centre, so it's all relying on the store managers. I'm a former retailer myself, so objectively speaking, it makes more sense to have store managers focused on servicing more customers and selling more on the store floor than worrying about is the shopping center promoting our marketing campaign. Uh, the other part of that is because the industry is fragmented, no two shopping centers really operate the same marketing efforts. So to do this work 
Literally, you have to go one property by property, which again, from an efficiency standpoint, is very manual and time-consuming. And do the brands provide sufficient resources to their individual properties and to their store managers within those different properties to, to assist them in their marketing efforts? I believe a lot of retailers try to, but the problem is if the store managers aren't compliant with the methods of the way that the shopping center, the property wants that content, uh, it becomes a challenge of all this back and forth and and lost time and opportunity. So we've created a scalable platform which makes it super easy for the retailers to execute their marketing campaigns across these uh, shopping center outlet, lifestyle centers, digital and physical media networks that they pay for. So our technology becomes sort of a one-stop shop or one source of truth to make it easy for the retailers to do this work at scale versus having 300 store managers do the same thing 300 times every week. And is this like essentially giving people a a toolkit so that they can pick and mix which kind of activities or activations that they want to deploy within their shopping centers? Uh, Yeah, so it could be anything, like we call it campaigns, so it could be anything from a new collection, a collaboration, sale, gift with purchase event. Typically every retailer has something going on 365 days of the year, so objectively speaking every retailer should always be visible and promoted, especially the fact that they're paying for it significantly through their leases. And is this just a North American issue or is this something worldwide? It's actually a global challenge. So we've done our research globally. We work with a number of retailers globally. And in any market that we're working in or looking at, every retailer has the exact same problem. And, and I guess if you could give retailers one uh, you know, kind of almost lasting message to think about, what would that be? I think with uh, the ever-changing retail world, retailers are always looking to do more with less. They're leaving no stone unturned, and to this point, we believe that there's a ton of value and opportunity that they're already paying for that they're not using and leaving a ton of traffic and sales on the table. So this is, I guess, a, a perfect example of use it or lose it. Exactly. Uh, Retailers coined it uh, the world's most expensive gym membership, so we're ready to help the retailers use it. Harnessing the potential of live stream and social commerce is a key battleground for retailers right now. Digital specialist Lisa is one company that's helping the likes of Marks & Spencer to embrace opportunities in this space. I caught up with its CEO, Sophie Freyer, to learn more. We founded Lisa about four years ago because we wanted to help retailers to really embrace new experiences in the online space. Uh, Mostly we work uh, related to live stream shopping and social commerce. So we help retailers like Marks & Spencer, for example, to bring these new kind of experiences uh, to their website. So Marks & Spencer live shopping is powered by Lisa, for example. We have a range of solutions from no-code solutions, which can literally just be plugged in in an hour and zero code is required to start live shopping, all the way to full enterprise solutions, which can be delivered as an SDK and app, for example. Also for social entertainment formats like, um, which is very popular right now, Shoppable Stories, which works a bit like on social media, short form content that is shoppable. Yes, so we have a range of software solutions that just plug into the retailer's websites. So you're obviously very engaged in the social space. What are some of the key trends in live streaming right now? Um, so we see that the biggest trend, and this is really also one of the, the key challenges uh, where retail, which retail is facing in this domain, the biggest trend we see is that there is a shift away from the paid content creation, and they're slowly realizing that that's not what customers want. Customers want something authentic, something real, a real interaction with the brand. So they're starting to put more and more of their own people in front of the camera, and that's where the magic is starting to happen. So this authentic element to the content is incredibly important. 
And in your experience, what have you seen as some of the mistakes that people can commonly make when they're doing live streaming? Um, so for some reason, I guess that's part of all of our, the generation that we all come from. A lot of us tend to think about live shopping like TV shopping in the 80s when we think of creating a live shopping experience. And so if there's one thing we could challenge or we like to break up when we work with brands and retailers, it's this notion that it needs to look and feel like TV shopping in the 80s. It should look nothing like <laughs> TV shopping in the 80s. So that's one of the main challenges we found, yeah. And I guess it's so important now, but live streaming and live shopping really took off, I think, in the pandemic, you know, when the doors were closed and people still wanted to shop. Post-pandemic, are we still seeing that there is growth in this area? Yes, absolutely. So social commerce as a whole, Accenture is predicting that it will reach 16.7% of all e-commerce transactions by 2025. So we're talking, you know, the year after next. Uh, so this is gaining traction really fast. And actually, this idea that people want to be able to go in and out of every touch point whenever they want to and however they want to only reinforces the need for something like live shopping. So actually quite the opposite. We see that it's accelerating now because people have this expectation that brands are everywhere whenever they want them to be there. And I guess for the consumer, it becomes kind of a seamless experience, really. As you say, very relatable. There's a you know, real people in front of the camera. Yeah, I think um, also here there's a lot of talk about data-driven personalization, which is a sort of one coin of how to scale, you know, personal, personal, if you will, experiences in an online environment. And here we're talking about actual human personal experiences, which can be delivered online in a scalable way. And I think the intersection of the two is where it's going to get even more interesting when we bring more and more AI into the live and social commerce space as well. What will an omnichannel experience of the future need to look like in order for retailers to retain customer attention and interest? That was the topic up for discussion during one of the event's panel sessions, with Camper Global Retail Director Isabel Aberman sharing her views. Of course, everything goes down to the product and how you want your customers to, to get what they want, where they want. Okay, so... We, a few years back, we decided to have this one-stock policy, so it doesn't matter where the stock is. It can be in a store in New York, you know, it could be in our warehouse in Barcelona. We have this system that you really makes sure that every customer buying online could get that product that's closest to, he, to, to that person without knowing where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been a huge change for us in, in that sense, mainly for our staff in, in the stores to suddenly have to ship product to customers for online and like, okay, my, this is my product. So there's a huge mindset in that. And, and I think that the people part in the tech part is super important because technology is here to support the business and to support the teams, but the teams, they have to make the right decisions to the what and where. That, that was the main change. Of course, now we have a lot of technology to really be very close to the consumers. We have the same strategy. Customers are at the center of everything that we do. You know, and it doesn't matter where, you know, again, we, we the online and offline worlds really work together today. It doesn't matter where you shop. We know, we know they browse online, they shop at the store, we know they come to the store, they try and then they go home and then they buy online. Yeah. So we have all this technology even in the stores to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. So if, when people are trying on, we make sure we get their email so then we can keep the conversation and say, hey, you tried this today, now you can shop online. That's one example. So it's really analyzing every part of the customer journey to make sure that we're going to have something for that customer when they need it. And sometimes it's not easy, you know, but it's the, the alignment between the departments in, okay, how do we get to the market? How do we do this? How do we tell this story? How do we approach this product and how do we launch it? It's key. 
Because then for your consumers, it's, okay, the brand is aligned, they tell me the same stories, I go online, I go there, I go there, I understand it's, everything is the same, it's, you know, there's no confusion. The panel session also featured group CMO of the very group, Jessica Myers, who had this to say about how retailers can meet the consumer where, when and how they want to interact with you in today's fast-changing retail landscape. Absolutely, it starts with being really clear on who the customer is, what their shopping journey is, understanding all the data points that we can get to to understand their behaviours and making sure we're being hyper-relevant for them. And we use a lot of data and put data in the right place to ensure that we have a really clear piece of segmentation to make sure we can be hyper-relevant at the right time. And therefore, that segmentation automatically feeds into our activations in real time so we can ensure that we're being there at that clear point. So that's what we do for, from a customer perspective. That's how we use customer strategy, organising our data and making sure that tech is absolutely that enabler. But we also use that for prospects and new customers as well. So we're really starting to think about things like, of course, their web browsing journey, when they're thinking about the right product, how we can be really efficient at that point about serving them the right ad, so obviously PPC. But also when prospects come to the site and start to navigate our multiple categories, how we can use nudges to help them get through that journey as well and to convert them into a, a customer for us. So really where we're focusing and what's really important to us is ensuring that absolute laser focus on our target customer, organising our data in a way that means it can be most useful and then tech therefore being that absolute critical enabler in that. We then start to think about the nuances of the customer and the brand and how that kind of shows up at every customer touch point. So when we're thinking about our digital customer experience and building that and making sure that across the estate it's seamless and consistent, you know, the customer and their testing and listening to them through focus groups and through all of our listening programmes ensures that we are developing and innovating our product for them too. Organisations want their CEOs to serve as agents of change. But just how do successful leaders stay on top? I sat down with Steve Tappin, CEO and co-founder of Beyond Unity, to find out why increasing levels of awareness and being more open to admitting fallibility are key to delivering strong leadership in extraordinary times. You're assuming that everything is OK right now. And in many cases, 99% of leaders, it's not OK right now. So I think, I think the first thing is you've got to go back and realise the truth about where you are. Where, where is your business really? Where are you really? And then really, what are the changes that you need to make first? Let's put all the external things, the bright shining out of the way, and just get you, be at your best as a leader first. My sense is that many CEOs are like hub and spoke leaders, where they're, they're over-committed, they basically over-execute for their management teams as well. And the issue is that they're so focused on being a success in the external world and very few of them have done the really proper work on, the, on themselves. So I think probably one of the biggest fundamental issues we have at the moment is CEOs and leaders around the world are still not looking in themselves. And if they want, they want to address some of the things in the retail world, you know, around omni-channel and sustainability and, and everything else, they won't be able to do it unless they actually work through that first, then move themselves into higher awareness. And, and do you think we're now in a time where it's easier for people to admit fallibility? I think it should be. So actually that's a golden opportunity that the CEOs aren't taking, Carl. It's a great point you make. So really there's an opportunity to actually be open about things that haven't worked. 
show more sincerity about what's not, not working and what's working. And as we move forward, and the pace in today's life is relentless, in retail never more so, what do you think retail leaders can learn today from looking back at the past? I'd look at it slightly differently, Carl. I wouldn't look, look in the past. I think that we've got traditional companies that, that really need to change now. And probably, I'd go as far to say like 98%, 99% of companies need to change. So I think if you're looking into the future and you're talking about speed, you know, many companies have a three-year plan. They have a, a one-year plan. They have monthly budgets, and that, that's how they work. When we're working with a top CEO now, we talk about being rude with the awareness code. You have to have relentless unimaginable daily execution so you have to go not in weeks and days and minutes you've got to actually operate in seconds so much faster and then what we're also training with CEOs is you have to be able to rest so what we're doing with CEOs now is we encourage them during the day to rest and have sleep we encourage them to spend time in nature we encourage them to spend time in water so what you can do is you can have a life where you're absolutely meeting 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 but you've got breaks nature water rest and sleep. So, so these are essential almost recharge points. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that's another fundamental point that in the awareness code, we talk about 60 levels of low awareness, which is really the ego, too much about yourself. We're supposed to be looking after a business and unifying a business. And what we talk about, there's 40 levels of high awareness, which really, Carl, is about a soul-based leadership. So over the next two or three years, we're going to train leaders that they can operate from the highest level of spirit and soul as an ordinary leader and then lead from that place. And if you're in that place, you're so solid that all these, all these stakeholders and media is not an issue. You just keep doing the best work, keep doing the right thing for your company and everything will work out. And I guess in many ways, your message is you, you can't expect to fix the outside unless the inside is working to begin with. Yeah. I'm Steve Tavin, who is the CEO from Beyond Unity. Thanks so much. The subject of retail leadership openly discussing their fallibilities and embracing mistakes was a key feature of a main stage Q&A with IKEA Retail Co-Chief Digital Officer Vim Blau. He spoke openly about how he questioned himself before taking on his latest role. He also provided insight into the reason behind the CEO of IKEA's decision to give employees licence to literally go bananas. It is okay to make mistakes because we will learn from them and we will become better. And our CEO is a big believer in testing, trying, experimenting, make mistakes, ask for forgiveness and learn from them. So that's why he decided to hand out those licenses to go bananas. And it has landed really well in the organization. Are we still a little bit cautious? Probably. But I think at least it made, it made a change, for sure. I went bananas, in my opinion, when I decided to join the digital organization. I have a long history in this company. I've worked in the stores, I've worked in the countries, and it was all a bit safe, right? Because you, you make the step, I have, I have a logistics and supply chain background, you work in logistics and supply chain, you become a general manager, and you go a bit like that. Until three years ago, when, there were, when a discussion, actually our CEO asked me, are you interested to join the digital organization? And I thought, hell no, right? Um, you know, what am I going to do there? I have zero competence. I am going to fail completely. And I decided to jump. And uh, for me, that was going bananas, to be honest. And I'm so happy that I did it. I have learned 
loads. You know, when we established the digital organization in 2018, we recruited a lot of people from the outside. Something that we have not done so often uh, in the past. And these amazing people brought new perspectives, new thinking, were really shaking the tree around the transformation. Someone asked me the other day, what has been your biggest leadership challenge, right, in the past few years? And I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, it's actually about being really inclusive. And this is something that I've learned in the last few years and that I'm embracing in a completely different way. And I think we also need to do that when we celebrate our 80 years, which we are doing this year. So we call it assembling uh, the future together uh, because we have uh, always been working with many partners, customers, co-workers, uh, social partners, suppliers, uh, and we are going to continue to do so. Someone else who has rightly earned praise for his leadership is David Boynton, who has just stepped down as CEO of The Body Shop. He took to the stage to underline the importance of living up to the standard you set and why now is far from the time to call time on retail's obsession with purpose. We've been on a purpose-led journey over the last five and a half years that I've been at the business. There's no question that when you make the decision to be purpose-driven, you are not taking the easy option. You are setting a higher standard for yourself and for your organisation. And that's a challenge, right? Because the last few years have been particularly challenging. It's been a wild ride. You know, we've been surviving the headwinds and learning how to thrive again. And it definitely hasn't been easy, but we have found a way to be consistent and live up to our sense of purpose. Anita in particular really had an objection with the traditional beauty industry and the way it made women feel bad about themselves. So she wanted to do things differently. Simple formulas, natural formulas, basic packaging, not tested on animals, and refills. Concepts that were about 40 years ahead of their time. And it wasn't only about the products and the shops, it was also about the communication. It was daring, it was cheeky, it was irreverent, it was political with a small p. Um, you know, Anita wasn't afraid of putting her head above the parapet. She was one of the original influencers. She was getting headlines in newspapers, and I guess you'd say that she was getting us earned media before we even knew what earned media was. But by the early 2000s, Anita was running out of steam. She was more on the periphery of the company, and they made the decision to sell. And the sale was made very controversially at the time to the company that's kind of the epitome of the traditional industry, L'Oreal. So L'Oreal uh, owned the body shop for about 11 years, and we all know, of course, that it's a fantastic company that's full of extremely clever people, and they do what they do absolutely brilliantly. But there's also no question about the fact that retail is not really their core channel. And activism isn't really the thing that L'Oreal does. So over, over the 11 years of ownership, there was no question that there was a loss in brand power. And that was compensated for more and more with very generic visuals and having to use heavy discounts as a way of being able to drive sales. So they ran the business for about 11 years, ran out of steam, and ended up holding an auction in 2017. And the company was acquired by Natura, the Latin American direct selling behemoth, uh, whose founders had known Anita from some projects they'd done together in the Amazon. And it seemed like it might be a much better fit. And that was a fantastic opportunity to have a clean slate to say, OK, what is the body shop? Why should the body shop be operating today? This is a brand that was created in 1976. Uh, what is our role in the world today? How do we deserve 
to continue to succeed and win. And the beautiful thing about this has been that it's enabled us for the first time since we lost Anita to be able to make choices that are authentic and true, that are relevant to the ethically engaged customers who love our brand. For the first time in such a long time, we were able to say, it's this and not this. And we also challenge ourselves to go back to the future and think differently about circularity, to reconnect with the values that Anita uh, showed in the stores back in 1976. And so, so far we have this in nearly a thousand stores around the world. We believe that we've taken somewhere in the region of three quarters of a million plastic bottles out of the supply chain because of this initiative. But what about people? Well, we believe that retail is a fantastic industry. We don't believe that jobs in retail are the jobs of last resort. You can have incredible careers in the retail industry. It's been, for a long time, the industry, I think, for driving social mobility. I started as on the till in Safeway Edmonton. And that wasn't Edmonton, Canada. That was Edmonton in North London, those of you who know it, which is quite different. So this is an industry, and I'm sure there's many of you out there have similar stories. This is an industry that really allows people to have incredible careers and do amazing, interesting things like. So we asked ourselves the question, how could we think differently about how we bring people into our industry? And we started talking to uh, an organization called Grayson Bakery, where they pioneered with Bernie Glassman this incredible idea of open hiring. Basically, you just put your name on a wait list, and when you get to the top of the wait list, you have a job. We thought this was a very cool idea for reaching people who haven't been able to have the dignity of paid work and have been excluded from the economy. So we tested it in our distribution center in North Carolina. It worked amazingly well. We took the very bold decision, which was controversial, to actually make open hiring apply to our stores. And the store teams became incredibly proud. And because the, the, the key point here is it's about a standard. The standard never changes. You have to be good enough to be able to thrive in this environment. All that we're doing is removing the barrier to you being able to get a job. And it's been uh, an amazing program for us. We're very proud of it. Um, and so far, 5,000 people have come through our open hiring program who would otherwise have been excluded from the dignity of paid work. In these times when it's incredibly important, I've heard it so much over the last day and a half, how hard it is to recruit people, you know, having a sense of purpose really makes people stickier in the business and makes you much more appealing than, than other businesses because our staff are able to say, if you want to give 5,000 people the opportunity for the dignity of paid work, sell a body shop product. If you want to take 100 million plastic bottles off the streets of India, sell a body shop product. You know, it becomes incredibly engaging for our people. It's a tough time out there. It's been a tough time for a couple of years or so. There's no question about that. And at times like this, it's very tempting to cut corners because we're all facing pressure from everywhere, from shareholders, from boards, from our customers, even from our people. You know, costs are up and sales are either flat or in many cases down. So it's tempting to say that purpose is something that's kind of you do on the side, you know, when times are good. When things are good, we're going to be more purposeful. But it isn't like philanthropy. It really is about the triple bottom line. It's about the way that you make money has an impact on social and environmental change. And everybody in your business and all of your customers, if you make this commitment to be purpose-led, is watching you to test whether you really mean it. Right? So you've got to live up to the standard that you set. It's absolutely incredibly important because people will remember in the tough times who really stuck the course and who didn't.
I think the key thing for us in terms of purpose is it's really liberated our thinking in the body shop. You know, it's allowed us to galvanize people right across the business to think differently about the opportunity and potential of this brand, which for the longest time was drifting somewhat rudderless. And not only that, it becomes something that's really compelling for your customers, right? We know that we won't appeal to everybody, but we want to appeal to people who care about the things that we care about. So is it time to call time on retail's purpose obsession, we would strongly say not. We would say this is the perfect time for retail to be embracing a sense of purpose and using our unique reach to customers to be able to make bigger differences in the world and collectively fight for a fairer and more beautiful world. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode from here in Barcelona at what has been a hugely enjoyable World Retail Congress 2023. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes featuring an exclusive interview with Javiana's president, EMEA, Guillaume Pru, and a roundtable discussion with Matahari department stores and Deloitte, recorded live at this year's World Retail Congress. But for now, from me, Carl McKeever, and the rest of the Retail Exchange podcast team, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Thanks for listening.